here. All right, you got your Bibles, go to the book of Acts. Jeff, take away our, our scripture reading. Please stand for the reading of the word. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Syria. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews they have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Well, if you are new, um, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we are making our way through the book of Acts. And we'll be starting, obviously, chapter 25 this morning and making it through these, these 12 verses. So how many of you this past week had to uh, wait for something or someone Right. Um, the answer to that would be all of us. All right. To some extent. Right. You, you, you waited for that cup of coffee. You know, if you're like me, you got one of those, just pop it in, push a button. Some of you fancy co- coffee snobs. You wait a little longer. Uh, maybe you had to wait uh, for a child. Maybe you if you're in school, you, you were waiting on that bell to ring to go to the next class. Uh, maybe if you're commuting, you're waiting in traffic either to get to work or back home. Right. We we wait. All the time. The average American, uh, statistics show, spends an average of five years of their life waiting in line, with six months of that being waiting at red lights. Okay, like, full disclosure, I don't know if those stats are actually accurate, okay? Like, I I don't know if they're actually accurate, um, but how many of you know, like, they feel right? Like, they feel accurate. Um, Yeah. and I've made this confession before here, but uh, I hate waiting. Like, that's not a secret to anybody. My kids know it. My wife knows it. And uh, most importantly, uh, God knows it. And uh, God has a way and uses waiting as a massive tool of sanctification in my life. Um, right? So if you see me at a grocery store or any store uh, for that matter, do not get in line behind me. 
because the line I am in will be the slowest, okay? It doesn't matter how short it is. It doesn't matter, all right? My line will be the one that the manager gets called, that all of a sudden now they have a flashing red light on their, you're right, it's the guy up front who all of a sudden in the 21st century uses a checkbook, right, to write a check to pay for his item. I'm like, come on, man, let's just do this. Yeah, sorry if I offended you and you use a check, but it slows everything down, all right? Uh, Tish uh, Harrison Warren in her book, uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, writes this. She says, Christians are people who wait. We live in a liminal timeline, the already and not yet. Christ has come and he will come again. We dwell as Christians in the meantime. We wait. Right? We, we, we know this is true. We all feel this. Y'all were nodding when we were talking about waiting even this week. But how many of us enjoy waiting? Like, you're like, I wish the coffee would take just a little bit longer, you know? Like, I just love this. I love traffic. Now, question, why don't we love waiting? Why don't we love it? Because, here's, here's the reason I'm convinced, most of us equate waiting with unproductivity. Meaning that waiting feels like unproductive time. Waiting is the time wasting away where we could be progressing, moving forward, right? Moving the ball down the court, right? Building something, doing something other than just being here. And we're stuck. Why bring this up at the beginning of Acts chapter 25? What does this have to do with the text that Jeff just read to us in our scripture reading? Well, let's remember. Where is Paul? Paul in Acts chapter 25 is exactly where Paul has been since Acts chapter 21. Paul's still in prison. He's waiting. He's in Caesarea at at this time and this point. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to camp out on this idea of waiting. Typically what I do is I walk verse by verse through that. But really this in the scripture reading, he just recounted things that have already occurred and been occurring as Paul's brought before these leaders in trials and things like that. But there was a sense in verses 10 and 11, and we can look at that really quickly, that struck me about how Paul responded back to to Festus here. So Paul, it says, this is Paul's language, but Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to death. I appeal to Caesar. It's like, it's like Paul's going, let's speed this thing along. I've been in prison for two plus years here in Caesarea. I've been in prison for two years and I've been before the tribunal. I've been before this governor. I've been before Lysias. I've been before all the people I should have been before. And here it comes to no conclusion. So he goes, finally, trump card. I appeal to Caesar. Take me to Caesar. Do you, do you feel that when you, when, you, when you read that text, when you see that text? But I understand Paul's point, right? All of these people have had the ability to execute a judgment against Paul. And Paul goes, listen, if you're going to execute me, take my life. But if there's nothing to execute me over, let me go. Let's get this thing going. Most theologians believe that Paul was arrested in Jerusalem in chapter 21, like I've said around 57 AD. And so I'm giving you really the context from here on through the rest of the book of Acts, okay? So when I talk about Paul being in prison, he's in prison, yes, here in Caesarea, but then he's taken to Rome, where guess what? He's still in prison, okay? 
And it's believed that he's, he's put in prison in 57 AD. Then he's let out of prison in Rome in 63 AD, probably under some kind of house arrest for a brief period. And then history tells us, right, after six plus years in prison, he dies somewhere around, he's martyred, he's murdered, he's killed, somewhere around 67, 68 AD. And that's Paul's life. This great apostle, this great missionary spends the bulk, if not all of the latter years of his life, waiting. Why? See, something I believe with my whole heart, because the Bible teaches it, is this. Is that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Everything. Like, there's not one detail that he is not moving along by his sovereign way and power and plan. So God knew every part of this plan and was leading and guiding every detail of this. Even Paul being in prison, hear me, is part of God's plan. We do not serve a God who is reactive. Okay? God is not reacting to situations and going, okay, here's how we're going to figure out, here's how we're going to strategize and and change. Our God sits outside of time. Okay? You know that, correctly? Like, he's not reactive. So this is part of God's plan. And God, in his economy, he sees that it is better for Paul to be in prison in these six plus years than for Paul to be free. Let me say that again. In God's economy, it is better for Paul to be in prison than for Paul to be free. How does that sit with you? Like, Paul is exactly where God wants him to be. To me, that seems crazy. Right? It seems crazy that, that chained up Paul is better than church planting Paul for the advancement of the gospel. But just, just, just think with me, right? And be honest. That chained up Paul versus church planting Paul for the advancement and the strategy of advancing the gospel to all nations and the Gentiles. Which one are you taking? Right? No one's writing this story. No one could, no one could make this up except the one who is sovereign over all things. So back to my question, why? Why is Paul in prison? Why does he spend six plus years ultimately to be martyred here in prison? And you can put this in your notes. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know why God chose in his sovereign wisdom and knowledge to put Paul and place Paul in prison like this. Why in the record of Acts, we see Paul and his missionary journeys. We see people coming to faith. We see revival breaking out. We see the Gentiles uh, receiving Christ. And then all of a sudden in Acts chapter 21, it's like the brakes get slammed on that. He gets put in prison. And when he gets placed in front of people telling his testimony and sharing the gospel, we don't have any record of anyone receiving faith. Like none of the governors, Festus, Agrippa, any of these men who, 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 who Paul recounts the gospel, none of them go, you know what? I want to trust in Christ. So he goes from like, if you will, batting a thousand to batting zero. Why? Well, we don't know the why. I think one of the things we have to become very good at as Christians and disciples of Jesus is this, that there will be several times and many things in our lives where we will not know the Why? And the reason God operates and does certain things in the way in which he does those things. We have to trust the scriptures when he goes, listen, my ways are above your ways. My sovereignty is good and right and proper, even when 
you don't understand it. And so why I don't see the why, I think I do see the what in Scripture. You see, it's from his time in prison, particularly from the prison cell in Rome, where Paul writes, and you might find some of these titles familiar, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, and his final one, 2 Timothy. It's in prison, waiting, inspired by the Holy Spirit, where Paul writes some of the most crucial and critical letters in our Bible. Like, think about what Paul was learning in prison. Think about what the Spirit was doing in his life. When you look at these letters, you hear things like Philippians 4.13. You all know this verse, right? What's Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This, this letter was probably written when Paul has been sitting in prison for over four years. He's in Rome now. Over four years. And Paul goes, listen, I can do all things through he who strengthens me. Listen, that is not a slogan for athletes, okay? Right? That's, not, that's not just something you bust out when you're going from 100 to 120 on the bench press, right? Going, that's me. That's my best, okay? Like, just going, I can do all things. That's not it. That's not a slogan. That's a banner for those who are waiting who are waiting, who are trusting, who feel stuck, who feel at that place in their life where they're just simply in this holding pattern going, God, are are you even aware of where I am? Have you heard my voice and my prayers and my pleas after the years and years I've prayed them? See, over and over in Paul's letters, particularly the ones when he's in prison, he says, I learned I was taught, I learned this, I was shown this. He says, I I learned how to proactively wait upon God. Uh, Do you know those people who are naturally patient? I can't stand, I can't stand you. I just can't, (laughs) I'm kidding. Uh, I don't think Paul is naturally like that. I think this is something that we have seen worked out in Acts in Paul's life that the Spirit does in these moments, in these jail cells where he learns to sit and wait in God's providence. You see, where he learns to submit his will, his way. It's in these moments of of, of waiting where we are learning to submit our will, our way, our productivity to the providential hand of God. And listen, and when Paul did that, What flowed from him was Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. What flowed from him from a prison cell, from going from being one of the greatest missionaries, most effective missionaries ever, capital A, Apostle Paul, what flowed from him in his waiting was this from Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, Paul, what he has in mind as his outcome probably is not a release. It's probably not that they're going to let him go as a free man from Caesarea or from Rome, right? This one was written in Rome, okay? He's like, I think I know the end for me. I think I know the conclusion. I think, and we hear a lot of these words in churches. Listen, I think I know my my destiny. I think I know my purpose, right? And on paper, it doesn't make sense. 
But here's what I know. Here's what it held for my Savior. Here's how, how he took it. It humbled him. He was humbled to the point of death on a cross. And Paul goes, this time in waiting, this time in prison, it is humbling me. It's humbling me to see and sense Jesus clearly. That's what waiting does. That's what it does, the full effect it has in our lives. Where then he would go like this, just a few verses later, right? Six verses later. He would say something as crazy like that. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. From prison. Bound with chains. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. Are you waiting um, on anything in your life? And I don't, I don't mean the, uh, uh, like the, the small way in the traffic lights or the store or anything like that. But, but maybe for some of you, there, there's some more major waiting that's been taking place. Maybe it, you're waiting on the salvation of a loved one, a child or a spouse, a baby. If you're waiting on an adoption, maybe you're waiting on a cure or a situation to resolve or marriage to be restored. And you're wondering, how can this possibly be good? You ever been there? Wouldn't it be better if those things just happened? Right? Cured, healed, restored, reconciled, saved. And I agree. I've thought that way. I still think that way. But here's the deal. As we really begin to examine the pages of Scripture all the way from Genesis to Revelation, you want to know one of the common themes we see? Waiting. Waiting. Joseph, Genesis, waiting in prison. Abraham, waiting for a promised son. Moses, waiting for the promised land. David, waiting for the promised kingdom. Jesus, New Testament. What did Jesus wait for? Waiting 30 years for the Father to deploy him into ministry. Waiting, waiting, waiting. See, if you were with us uh, last night, we celebrated the Seder meal, celebrating the Passover. And it is this very uh, meticulous uh, a planned out meal with each thing representing something about um, really the exodus, the, the, the salvation of the Lord toward his people. And one of the purposeful things in that meal is the length of it. So you go through this meal and it's not like an eating meal. Like you partake of these little things, like you're eating like, you know, parsley, right? And it's like, mm, yeah, parsley. But at the end, there's a feast, Okay. So, as if I needed any more examples for my impatience. Uh, last night, I'm sitting at the Seder and Heather Simpson's leading us to the Seder meal. And I've eaten the parsley, you know, dipped in the salt water. And I'm eating the, you know, the, the unleavened bread. I'm trying to eat as much because I'm just starving, right? It's time's ticking. And like we're on the, there's four cups and we're on the third cup, cup of redemption. And I'm like, let's go. Like I am so hungry, right? I'm ready. And, and it was like, the Lord's like, you're preaching on this tomorrow, bro. Like, why don't you slow down? But listen to me. That's purposeful. The whole intention of that is to get you to that place where you're like, let's speed this thing up. Now let's think about God's people before they got into the promised land. How long did they wonder? Right? How long did they, were they in the desert? 40 years. Why? 
Because God just wanted them to just kind of hang out out there and just kind of linger and go, okay, okay, wait, wait. No, what was he doing? He was working and bringing out of them things that must have been worked out in the wilderness before they entered into the promised land with the right heart set and the right mindset. I mean, even last night at this meal, I'm like, God, I don't want to just eat the brisket over there. God's like, that's so your flesh. To rush, to hurry, and not to see me, to miss me in the process. To just to get to the next thing. Christians are people who wait. But in our waiting, what are we tempted to do? Take matters into our own hands, right? Tempted to say that God doesn't care. Tempted to say, I know what is best or better. We get impatient with God. We get impatient with life. But where has impatience led you? I would argue that impatience is the root of so much sin in our lives. So much of the sin in my own life flows from the root of impatience. It's from the root of impatience that causes my words to be sharp. My mouth to go off the hinge. For me to respond in very unchristlike ways. Impatience, impatience, impatience. It was impatience that caused Adam and Eve, Genesis, to partake of the fruit. It was impatience that caused Moses to strike the rock, right? In the desert going, God, come on. Move this along a little bit. It was impatience that caused Abraham to take Hagar. Are you sensing a theme here? One author, he puts it like this. I think it's so well written for us. He said, God intended man to have all good, but in God's time. And therefore, all disobedience, all sin consists essentially in breaking out of time. Patience is the basic constituent of Christianity. The power to wait, to persevere, to hold out, to endure to the end, and not to transcend one's own limitations, not to force issues by playing the hero or the titan. Guilty? Anybody else? By being the savior of the situation, by stepping in, going, I can make a way, I can do these things, I can change this, I can manipulate this. But to practice the virtue that lies beyond heroism the meekness of the lamb which is led. I like being the hero. I like being the person that people look at and they go, yeah, they're productive. They're making things happen. They did this. They didn't, they didn't do this. But a lamb which is led That's where waiting gets you. Waiting gets you to that place. That place of desperation, that place of humility, that place of reaching the end of yourself. Where I no longer rely on Kyle's self-will and power and intellect. Waiting gets me to the end of myself. But all the time we're guilty of breaking out of time. But hear me, Christian. We do more than just wait. And what I mean by wait is just passively twiddling our thumbs. 
A great book to read is 1 Thessalonians about proactively waiting. You see, what gives us the energy? What gives us the confidence? What gives us the strength to wait? In one word, hope. That we as Christians, we as disciples, have a hope. A hope that God is doing something in our waiting. You see, this is how Paul talks about patience. Notice how there is an anxiousness, but underneath it's a hope. Look at this in, in Romans 8. Notice his, his, his angst, an angst we all feel. But what undergirds that? He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, like we experience that. Like that's the waiting, that's the angst, that's the anxiety. Who have the first, who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this, we what? We hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Listen, for Christians, waiting is not untethered, just, just, just pacifying or passing of time. It is a hopeful activity. Why? Because biblical hope is very different than the cultural kind of hope, right? We use the word a lot, right? I, I, I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl, right? I hope I get to go to Italy, right? Th- those things may or may not happen. But when the Bible talks about hope, there is a, a, a certainty about it. There is a guarantee that this hope may or may not happen. There is no, if God said it, it will occur. And so for us as believers, we don't wait just wondering how things are going to play out in the end. We know how they're going to play out in the end, right? And so Paul goes, listen, that's the hope we anchor in so that we can sit in places like prison in chains and go, listen, I'm confident whether I'm released or I die, that in the end, I know where I end up. I know who I will be with, and that is Christ Jesus, right? So whatever we're walking through, whatever we're waiting through, however long God calls us to wait, we don't wait passively. We wait proactively, understanding the hope that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So we, we hope, right? We wait with a hope in mind. But so often we lose sight of that hope. So we get anxious, we get uncertain, and then that, that's when what happens? We begin to take matters into our own hands. And so listen to me. God is producing something He's creating something. And all of these little waitings are shadows of the big waiting. Okay? We are living each ordinary day in light of a future reality and hope that our best life is still to come. Our best life isn't now. Sorry to burst some of your bubbles, okay? Our best, isn't, our best life isn't now. It is one that is yet to come. Another phrase that we use a lot, right? The best is yet to come. That is a statement about eternity. I mean, think about if you would have said that to Paul, right? Talking about earthly things, right? The best is yet to come, Paul. The best is yet to come, right? He would have never thought about the things on this earth. He would have thought entirely about Christ. He would have thought entirely about his eternity forever. He goes, you're right. So whether I'm free or I'm in prison, I can be confident that God is doing and working something out, even if I can't see it and don't feel it. Listen to me. This means no waiting is ever wasted. And I want to remind you again that just because you can't see what God is doing does not mean he's not moving or working on your behalf. Child of God, he is. He is. Um, There's a book and it has this title, very interesting title, Three and a Half Mile an Hour God. Um, 
which three and a half mile, if you know three and a half miles is approximately the pace that you walk, right? And so it's a book about Jesus's pace. There's no record of Jesus ever being in a hurry, right? And, and, and that's kind of striking because you think about all the situations he was in, all the, 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 the urgency to which people came to him, right? My daughter, my son, Lazarus. I see Jesus running. He goes, I'll, I'll be there. Think of the heart of our Savior, how he is never in a rush. He's never hurried, right? He's, he, he's, he's never being rushed along by the waves of circumstance. Why? You're like, he's God, right? Okay, now let's talk about that, right? He was also 100% man. I'm convinced it was for this reason. Because he was so connected to the Father's heart. He was never in a rush because he was confident in his closeness and his proximity to the Father to know, I'll go my way. I will not be in a rush. I'll not be in a hurry. I will be about my Father's business. You see, that kind of depth only comes from waiting, only comes from being in the presence of God repeatedly. It's a quote that has been rattling around in my head, one we've used here a lot, is from Richard Foster. He says, you know the need today, and he's talking to Christians, he's talking to the church, is not for smarter disciples, it's not for more intellectual disciples, it's not for harder working disciples, even though those are all fine and, and good things. The desperate need today is for deep people. Deep people. You see, waiting produces patient people. And patient people become deep people. And deep people become resilient people. That is what God is trying to work in his church. A people who are deep, not just to go, hey, look at us. No, so that his church is resilient. When the winds and waves of doctrine and culture slam against us, we're not tossed to and fro, but our roots are dug deep by the presence and spirit and word of God so that we might withstand. Isaiah 40, verse 30 and 31. It says, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. This is Isaiah essentially just going, listen, there are these times and, and, and seasons in our life and, and, and life in general where those who are supposed to be the strongest, those who are, who are supposed to have the most vitality, they even grow weary. They, they, they faint. They, they, they fall exhausted in their own strength and willpower, right? But who makes it? Who makes it in those inevitable seasons of waiting and tribulation and hardship? Verse 31. But those or they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Who renews their strength? God renews it by what means? By waiting upon him. By trusting in him. By submitting to him. By coming before him repeatedly. And then he says what we all know and slap on the coffee cup, right? They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint, right? 
coming out of a year like 2020 where weary and faint and all those things define every single person in this room. How do we renew our strength? Not by just clicking over a new calendar year, not by just attending church or coming on Easter Sunday or whatever you think would fix you right on, on, on the surface. Here's how, here's how you renew your strength by submitting to King Jesus again, by waiting in his presence, by lingering in his presence, by coming into his word, by falling on your knees in prayer. That's where you will renew your strength and not grow faint and not grow weary. That's it. By waiting. I hate preaching messages like this. Seriously. Like if, because uh, it's like, Lord, I'm so bad at this. Anybody else? Like, I, I bet I won't make it, uh, Lord, without four hours going out of here and I'll be convicted, Right? Because I'll be rushing along. I'll be doing something. And I'm praying that my heart in this church, we would learn to submit to the sovereign hand of God in our waiting. And I'll leave you with this, this verse from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And, and remember, 2 Timothy, written obviously to Timothy, Paul's apprentice. But 2 Timothy is, is, is most likely the last letter Paul ever wrote. And this is what he says to Timothy. He says, Timothy, remember I'm in prison in Rome. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. Remember what I've talked about the last several weeks about the resurrection being everything. The hinge, what does he say? Remember Jesus, remember his resurrection from the dead. The offspring of David is preached in my gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. That's Paul's perspective. I'm bound in chains as a criminal, illegally bound in chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Timothy, here's here's the take heart moment. Here's the charge. Like, you may look at me, you may look at my imprisonment, you may look at my literal wrists and feet, right? Tied in chains and they can bind me. They can bind my physical body, but guess what? They can't bind the word of God. It can't be bound. It is going forth. It is moving forth regardless of where I am, Paul says. Whether I'm preaching, right, in in the synagogue or whether I'm here bound in chains in prison, the word of God is moving forth. You know what that shows me? That my meaning, my purpose, my, my, my value to God, my worth to God, is not about what I do. Some of you wonder if you're valuable, you you have meaning to God because you're just like, I'm not doing anything. My work feels meaningless. Where where, where I am, the station in life, the things I'm waiting on, surely God, God, is there any worth to you in this? And he goes, yes, but it has nothing to do with those things. And your worth to me is wrapped up entirely in my son, Jesus Christ. So when I look at you, I look at him. And don't you dare for a minute, don't you dare for a minute diminish his, his value and his worth. So when he sees Jesus, he sees you. Not just your activity, not just, just what you do or what you're not doing. He sees his son. And so listen, that means whether we're in waiting or we're not waiting, all of it is purposeful for the work of God in our But many of you, if not most of you, I know, are in seasons you'd describe as waiting. 
And many of you are wondering, God, where are you? God, are you really working? God, do you really see me? God, do you, where are you? And I pray that Acts 25 this morning and really the rest of Acts as we see Paul in prison waiting, we would see the sovereign providential hand of God at play, not just in his life, but in ours as well. Telling us as an impatient people, slow down. See me in the ordinary. See me moving in the day in and day out activities that you just gloss by or gloss over. Stop being in such a rush. Stop, st- stop trying to be so productive. Stop thinking that the kingdom of God is built on your shoulders. Stop thinking that, that the work you do is what gives you value to God. Jesus goes, listen, you can't bind or bound the word. You can't stop the kingdom of God from advancing. And so he calls us in, many of us, to the place of waiting and lingering so that we might know how to faithfully walk. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. God, um, we confess collectively our great need for you. We are an impatient people to which I am the chief of all impatient people. Lord, I ask that you would help us to see a clearer picture of the moments and circumstances that you bring into our lives as as seemingly small or, or, or huge as they may be. That you're working something out in us you're working out of patience. You're working out a, 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 a byproduct of your spirit. You're trying to create a depth and a resilience in us so that we might stand for you. Whether behind a pulpit or in prison. Whether in a classroom or a workroom or a home. God, create in this church a depth a true spirit-given depth of a people who understand the heart of their God and the call of their Savior, Jesus. That understand the life that we have been invited into and the participation we get to enjoy in his kingdom. And Lord, when circumstances come and they inevitably will in our lives that we don't understand, Lord, I pray that we would run to you first. We'd submit to you first and not our human ingenuity and our intellect and our resources. Father, I thank you for the journey that you have the Parks Church on. God, I I, I feel it. I sense it. I'm participating with it. The depth that you're drilling down in us. And oh God, it's, 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 it's beautifully painful. But God, I pray that you continue that good work in us. You continue that good work in this church, in your church, that we would see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. And that we'd get the joy to participate how you see fit. So Lord, I pray as we go from here this holy week, that our eyes would be fixed upon Christ. 
that we would uniquely see and sense the cross, the cost and the payment that Jesus gave for all of us so that we could live in light, in relationship with you. So Father, I pray that we might go from here faithfully stewarding the days and the moments you give us for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.